Well, good morning and welcome everybody again one more time. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we're kicking off a brand new series today called He, Not Me. And the idea of this series is that we're going to take a look at the last days of Jesus uh, throughout this time leading up to Easter, and we're going to see about how Jesus was betrayed, how Jesus was abandoned, how Jesus was punished instead of of me. So we're taking a look at how the death of God benefits us. How about how the resurrection of Jesus resurrects and raises us? That he didn't just die for me, he actually died instead of me. And so what we're doing uh, throughout this time together, throughout this series, is that square card that you received when you came in, there's a grow deeper section on that. There's a challenge that comes along with this series to read through the eyewitness account, the Jesus story, according to Matthew. To one or two chapters every single day, starting today, is going to take you right up through Easter Sunday where you finish it off. And it's pretty cool. Uh, that's going to line up really well as you get closer to uh, Resurrection Sunday to kind of hear how, some of those stories, uh, Good Friday and Resurrection. Sunday. It's going to be a powerful time in your devotional life uh, to experience God daily. Okay, today, again, we take a look how Jesus was abandoned, about how Jesus was punished, and today specifically about how Jesus was betrayed, not just for me, but instead of me. So just kind of want to start off with a betrayal story of my own and my family. My son, Colin, uh, he has been asking for something, but he says what he's wanted his whole life. And at five years old, I kind of believe him. He hasn't had that much life, so maybe he's telling the truth. Um, He has wanted for his whole life a price gun. I have no idea where he got this idea from, why he wanted it. I think he just saw somebody at the grocery store, like, checking, you know, a sign. And he's like, "I, I need one of those. So last Christmas, we got him, as the big present for that morning, a price gun. I said, there, now you can do, like, I don't know what you're going to do. Whatever you want with a price gun, go ahead and take it. It's yours. And so immediately he goes about work to start assigning prices on everything in our house, right? He goes into the pantry and the granola bars that I bought from the store earlier that week that are suddenly now being resold to me at $10 a bar. When you're hungry, supply and demand start to factor in. Right? He's assigning value, he's assigning prices to everything in the house. A, a, a couch seat to watch TV is like $100. The TV remote is $1,000, which is legit. He starts putting price on mom and dad, right? I, on my back. I can't walk around the house without him like labeling my back with all these prices. And he guesses as to how much uh, he, he priced me for. A dollar. Thank you. One dollar is what he said it at. Like, that's funny. Oh, man. So that's what we're talking about this morning. And I, I don't think that I'm the only one with, uh, with everything in my house uh, having a price on it, right? Because we're kind of talking about assigning prices to things and the price that we'd pay. And you have a price on everything in your house, too. You have a price on your time. In fact, you label your time every time you get out and you pay the neighbor kid $20 to cut the grass instead of you, you've just decided that your time is worth at least that, at least $20, then it's worth the money. If you've got to wash your car and you don't want to do it yourself, so you drive through one of those things, your time is worth at least eight bucks. You've assigned a price onto that. If you decide to go out to eat this afternoon instead of making something at home, you've assigned a price of 30 or $40, depending where you go and how many people you have in your family. You assign a price to your time. You also, we also assign prices to our health. You've noticed how much cheaper it is to eat uh, at McDonald's than it is at the grocery store. We have to like go through the work of then cooking everything. Your health has a price to it. 
We even assign prices to our careers, our vocations, those things that we do for money. We assign prices to it. At one time, uh, somebody was looking for a position, looking for a job, and they kind of described their field and their industry. And I found one that I thought was a pretty good fit. And I sent it along and said, here, I don't know, maybe check this one out. I heard about this thing. And they got back to me and they said, I'm not even qualified to apply for a job like that. They assigned a price to their career, maybe even without even realizing that they did it. And it was a low price as well. I'm not worth even applying to a job like that. One of the more encouraging ones is whenever I get to hear somebody assign a price or assign worth or a value to somebody in their romantic lives. I'll say it's encouraging because sometimes people say, you know what, he hasn't called back, he hasn't texted back. And communication is sketchy at best. And I'm worth more than that. They're not worth the price to be paid. And there's a price that we assign to things. And so what I want to do this morning is entering in and saying, do we, is it possible that we assign a price to our faith? And so I know that's a mixed group. So we've got a lot of different people around in the room this morning, kind of coming from all different spectrums and ideas about belief and what that is. And so I, I want to welcome everybody in, no matter what your convictions are. Maybe you're still exploring things and checking out who God is and, and what God is all about. And you're just not quite sure this is going to be a good time to just kind of listen in to see about how Christians deal with some of this stuff. Uh, maybe you do have some convictions about some kind of a God out there and you just kind of start to assign a value or Think about what the price is that you would assign to whatever belief that you have about God. But for those of you who have committed to, to God, those of you who have committed to following in the footsteps of Jesus and living and loving, just like Jesus Christ lived and loved, this story is going to hit painfully home for you. Because we're going to hear a story in this morning about somebody who assigned a very specific price on to their following of Jesus. And we're going to hear not only about how that person assigned a price, but how that person is a stand-in for how all of us assign a price onto our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you along in the story of Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to go this morning. There's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. You can go ahead and pull that out. Take it home if you'd like. If that's going to be helpful in your faith journey to have one of those, uh, one of those Bibles, we give those away all the time. And we love that. You can follow along in the Bible app and take some notes that way. The words are going to be on the screen behind me as well. This story starts off in Matthew 26 in verse 14. And it says, Then one of the disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, if I deliver Jesus over to you? So, he, so he's got a price in his mind about, about what his allegiance to Jesus is worth. And what he's just simply doing is, is negotiating. Is what they're willing to pay worth what I'm willing to sell him for? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And obviously it was enough money because verse 16 says, okay, so then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him, that is to hand Jesus over for the low, low cost of 30 pieces of silver. Now, before we get into more of the character of Judas, I just kind of want to point out that, that 30 pieces of silver in today's value is about $7,500. I mean, it's a good amount of money. It's not a ton of money. And so later on, we have to ask this question about like, why in the world would you sell your allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for $7,500. What could he have possibly had in mind for that $7,500? I looked. I was curious. 
What does that kind of money buy? And I found out that you could buy a base model 2009 Honda Accord right now for about $7,500. Why did I pick that car? Because the Bible teaches us that the disciples were of one accord. <laughs> I'd be here all week. <laughs> um, Judas, Judas sells Jesus out for 7500 bucks for a Honda, an old one. According to the website that I was looking at, about 120,000 miles on it. I mean, Judas, like how in the world? Like why would you sell out the Son of God? I mean, for anything, let alone 7500 bucks. I mean, Judas was presumably with Jesus when Jesus turned water to wine. Judas was with Jesus when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Judas, how could you sell out a guy like that for $7,500? We continue on in the story, and we're going to keep on asking these questions. Verse 20, when evening came, Jesus gathers his disciples around, and he's having dinner with them. As a special dinner, as a Passover dinner, we'll get to that in a minute. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they're eating, he said, today, I tell you that one of you will betray me. And they were very sad. And they began to say to him, they, they began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord? Question mark. I just kind of like underline that or tuck that away. That phrase is going to be repeated later on. And I think that there is something to that. But we have to, we have to highlight a little bit more about this character of Judas now that Jesus just identified is willing. He knows he's going to sell him out. He's going to betray him. And I think how in the world could a guy like Judas do that? How in the world, after seeing what he has seen, how could he still go through with it? How could he go through with it after Jesus has essentially just said, I know what you have done. I know what you're about to do. This is like a last opportunity that you have to to not go ahead, to not go through with it. After seeing what Judas has seen, how could he still go through with it? You see, what I want to do is I want to take this character of Judah and I kind of want to, want to cast him in a new light for you. Because even if you haven't grown up in church, I'm guessing many of you know who Judas is. You know at least maybe the, maybe the broad strokes of he's a, he's a betrayer of Jesus. Like he's the, he's the epitome of the bad guy or the villain in the Bible. And so most of us, we look at Judas and we're like, yeah, that's, that's the guy with, with, with under his sandals. He's got hooves for feet. Right? That's the guy with horns in his hair. If you just like brush it to the side, you could see it. I mean, that's Judas. That's the guy who's just all bad all the time. If you're a U of M fan, you're going like, no, it's Tom Izzo. Like, he's the guy. Maybe it's too soon. Sorry, it's Saturday night. It was rough. I get it. You made it to church at 1045. That's cool, though. Uh, and I kind of want to rescue him from that and say, no, no, I don't think he's the bad guy all the time. At least he wasn't to them. I mean, to them, he was at least trustworthy enough that they put him in charge of the money bag. It says that the disciples elected him to be the carrier of the purse. So they all kind of like pooled their money together and said, Judas, you know, we trust you. You can hang on to it. And anybody who has been in the hiring position, you know that if you, the person that you have to trust the most for your business is your accountant. Nobody hires a shady accountant. They trusted Judas. And when the moment came that Jesus says, listen, one of you is going to betray me. They don't all turn and look at Judas and go, well, obviously it's him. He's got the parcel tongue. Like, 
They trusted him. I just kind of want to rescue him from that one-dimensional caricature that we have of him. If you want to get into Judas a little bit more about like what makes him tick and just to hear a lot more, there's a group of people who have been talking about this around here for a little while. Judas, just kind of like coincidentally, maybe providentially. Um, so Wednesday night, again at Horrocks, that's like our off-site site of encounter, if you didn't pick that up. It's just people are going to hang out and maybe um, talk a little bit more about this character of Judas and like what he was all about and why he did what he did and maybe why he didn't do what he didn't do. But, but Judas, in the story here, he is... He is a trusted guy, at least the disciples. They don't all immediately recognize him as the bad guy. He's at least nuanced enough, but he still, he has an opportunity to go one way or the other. And Jesus is like giving him chance after chance. Listen to the story as it continues on. In verse 23, Jesus replied, it's the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it's written about him. Uh, And I just kind of wondered as a side note, like, why don't they all notice that? Like he just said, the guy, the betrayer is the one that we dip our hands in the bowl at the same time. And like, how have you not realized like it's Judas? But I think you ever have dinner with 12 other guys. There's a lot of commotion going around. So I don't think they all knew, but Judas knew because maybe like his hand bumped Jesus' hand into the bowl. And he's like, no, that happened to me. Oh, and also he just signed an agreement with the religious leaders. (laughs) He knows it's him. Jesus knows that it's him. Nobody else knows. It continues on. Uh, Verse 24, pick it up again. The son of man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man, that's Judas, who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me. Rabbi? Jesus answered, you have said so. You said it, not me. Now that's that line that I asked you to underline earlier just to hang on to. When Jesus first said, somebody's going to betray me, he says, everybody said, surely you don't mean me, Lord. The second time it's repeated now with just Judas and he says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. I've read this story a bunch of times already right? Uh, as, a, as a Christian for a while now and as a pastor, um, this story wasn't totally new to me. This wasn't the first time that I read it. Honestly, though, this is the first time that I've noticed that that same phrase is repeated, only it's downgraded when Judas says it. It's downgraded from, surely you don't mean me, Lord, to surely you don't mean me, rabbi, a teacher. And I just can't help but wonder if maybe there's something there about when Judas is doing whatever he's about to do, he, he like has to, has to, de-elevate uh, Jesus from the status of Lord to just teacher. He takes, he takes his rabbi, he takes Jesus, and he goes, no, no, maybe you're not God to me in this moment. You're just a leader to me in this moment. But for whatever reason, he brings him down. Uh, just a couple of points on this. Uh, when he says betray that word earlier on, that's literally to sell. Uh, to hand over the price thing that we're talking about earlier. That's what's talking about. Uh, Jesus is going, one of you has sold me. You know who it is. And then the second thing is that uh, surely word. When he says, surely you don't mean me. And it wasn't just Judas, remember? It was everybody who said that. And Greek commentators on this uh, say that it's actually the way that the sentence is structured. It's as if it's a question, not a response. And we get that from the question mark. So maybe you could understand that as, surely it's not me. But is it, Lord? Could it be me? Could it possibly be? 
Now, this is the nuanced thing about Judas and how I think that we're all kind of Judas in some way. Because we think, how in the world, after seeing what he has done, could he do what he has done? After watching him raise the dead back to life. Here's the thing. And maybe to turn this more into a dialogue on Wednesday evening at 7, and as opposed to a monologue Sunday morning, you can talk about it further. But, but I don't think Judas ever stopped believing that Jesus was the Messiah. I think even when he sold him out for 30 pieces, for 7,500 bucks, I don't think Judas ever stopped believing that Jesus was who he says he was. He just severely misunderstood what it meant to be the Messiah. You see, the thing is, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he was in synagogue one time in worship, and there's a part of the worship experience that he was a part of that they asked if anybody wants to come up on stage and to share a few words. And so Jesus, he says, okay. And he comes up on stage and he come, goes to the scroll, the Bible, and he, and he pulls out the book of Isaiah. And he, and he pulls it out and he says, I have been anointed to proclaim good news, good news to the poor and the marginalized. And everybody's like, nice job. You're going to be a fine preacher someday which is actually what they tell us in seminary. Like when you're leaving, after you like give one of your first sermon, they're like, hmm, you're going to be a pretty good preacher someday. And you're like, I don't know how to take that. Like, that seems like an insult to me, but like, okay. But they tell it to Jesus. You're going to be a good preacher someday. Well done. The only thing is out in Jesus ministry, he started highlighting whom he believed was the poor. He believed was the marginalized because they all had an idea that the, that the wicked were going to be punished and that the righteous were going to be rewarded. And they knew who the righteous were and they knew who the wicked were. The wicked were the bad religious leaders or, or the wicked were the Roman oppressors in the area. And the good guys were the guys like Judas. The good guys were the marginalized and the poor like Judas. They were the good guys and they were about to be rewarded. When he believes when he says that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, he believes firmly to the very core of his being that Jesus is the guy that's going to punish the wicked Roman oppressors. Or he's going to be the guy who's going to punish the wicked uh, Pharisee overlord religious leader types. He's going to punish those people. He's going to reward the good people, the good poor marginalized people like Judas. But the problem is, out in Jesus' own ministry, he starts to do things like take the, the Roman centurion and say, you know what, I, I'll go ahead. Even though you're a Roman soldier, I'm going to heal your servant. And it's going, no, no, Jesus, he's not, he's not a good guy. He's not the poor and marginalized. He's the bad guy. He's the wicked guy. He's the guy that needs to be punished. And Jesus, later on, he takes his arresting officer after Peter slices off the guy's ear and he puts it back on. It's going, Jesus, no, he's trying to harm you. He's the wicked bad guy. You're supposed to punish him. You're not supposed to be on his side. And this is Judas. And he's like really frustrated in this moment because he's going, just doing this all wrong. Here, let me help you. Let me expedite this whole process to get done what I know you came to do. And he sells them out. Only the idea that Jesus actually had was to say, Judas, I did come to save you. But I also came to save him. I did come to be on the side of the broken. But I also come to be on the side of the breaker. I came to save him from him. And you from you. I came 
so that anybody, anybody who would be willing to say that I need help, I need grace, can get it. And for Judas, he could never quite get there. He never quite wanted to pick up and to receive grace because it meant that he needed it in the first place. And he asked that question, Jesus, surely you don't mean me, right? Right, teacher? And Jesus says, not only do I mean you, Judas. In fact, I mean everybody. You know, a little bit later on in that meal, in verse 31, Jesus says, I tell you that this very night, you will all fall away. And I just think that it's so powerful when we talk about the prices that we put on our allegiance to following Jesus. That we all, in fact, have a price. Jesus said that explicitly to his very first disciples. You all have a reservation. You all have a price. That if it came to this, you're out. Two anecdotes on that. We have on one side, Judas. And for Judas, it's $7,500. It's a 2009 base model Honda Accord. For Judas, it's so low that it's just 30 pieces of silver. And you're going, Judas, that's such a low price. Yeah. On the far side of things, you have Peter. And Peter, after Jesus is arrested and as he's being tortured, and Peter kind of knows where this thing is heading. It's heading towards crucifixion. And this little girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, you're one of those. And Peter, he's afraid, right? He's not afraid of the little girl. He's afraid of the army behind the little girl. And he's going, no, 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 it's not me. I'm not one of those because he doesn't want to end up on a cross like Jesus. So for Judas, the price that he has is a Honda Accord. And for, G- and for Peter, the price that he has is his own very life. But a price is a price. And it doesn't matter how much it is. One of my favorite little anecdotes is, uh, and I don't know, this is probably like legend or folklore or something, but I'm going to say it anyway because it just works super well. Winston Churchill in uh, World War II, he's the prime minister of England, and he's trying to explain why it is that he doesn't acquiesce, why he doesn't, he doesn't bargain uh, with, the, not, with Nazi Germany, with, the, with the, really the evil empire, right? And he's going, no, no, you can't, you can't bargain with evil like that. You can't give in just a little bit. And so there's this reporter that's calling him. He's a warmonger, right? He's power hungry. He's authoritarian. Talking about Churchill now and just writing all this stuff about him. And so he's talking to this reporter and she goes, let me just ask you a question. Would you sleep with a king for a hundred million British pounds? You know, she thinks it over She's like, you could do a lot of good with that. So, yeah, I think I would. All right? And he goes, well, <clears throat> would you sleep with me for 50 pounds? And she goes, Mr. Churchill, right? All indignant. And she goes, like, who do you think? What kind of woman do you think I am? I'm not a prostitute. And he goes, I beg your pardon, ma'am. We already established your identity. I just wanted to know the price. <laughs> a price is a price, right? The point remains. I don't even know if that story is true or not. I kind of reasons maybe it's not. It's been around for a few different people, but still, like the point remains. Price is a price. Over on the one hand, you have Judas selling out Jesus for a Honda Accord. On the other side, you have Peter and his own very life. The question in the middle is what's your price? What's my price? 
I mean, I think maybe I should go first. I think about all the ways that I sell out on Jesus, where I set the price. You know, and I laugh at Judas because it's like 7,500 bucks for the son of God. You've got to be kidding me. I'm sure mine would be way more. And then I go ahead and uh, I make these, these commitments to myself um, that like today is going to be the day that like I'm going to really buckle down and, and spend more time doing bedtimes with my kids and maybe get a Bible reading plan going or some kind of like kids devotional, right? And I'm just going to do this like really good work and it's going to be really meaningful time and I'm going to think about it and pray about it ahead of time to like really invest and to use this time wisely. And then by the time bedtime comes, like, I'm just tired, I just, I'm in a long day. I'm exhausted. I just want to like expedite this bedtime thing so I can go back downstairs and watch TV. And I'm like, the price is like 20 minutes of old reruns on Netflix. <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. I'd rather have Judas's accord than that. What's your price? I think as a challenge, as an action step this week, it might be worth just simply like asking that question. Maybe in a community, the people that you came here with, maybe as a small group or as a, as a house, is just asking like, in what ways do we hand over, do we sell out Jesus? I think of a, a few of them that I have written down here is that maybe, maybe you downplay your commitment to Jesus in front of your friends because you don't, you don't want them to mock you. You don't want them to, to think of you as like one of those strange Christian people. Maybe it's an area of your life that you just don't want to let God have control of yet. Later, but not yet. Maybe God has told you to go somewhere, do something, and you're resisting. Maybe God has told your kids to go somewhere and do something, and you're resisting that in them. Maybe God has told you to stay and dig in, but you want to run away and escape. Maybe it's a, a conviction on your music or entertainment habits. Maybe for some of you, it's a relationship. Maybe for some of you, it's living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or sleeping together. Some of you know that you work too much and you Sabbath too little. Maybe your price is putting him first in finances. I'm with you, God, but until this bank account thing, that's my price. That's my line. Just not quite there yet. For some of you, I might be committing to the church. Like I'm here, I'm in, I'm ready, but I just, I don't want to dig into this one. I'm not really quite sure if I found the right one yet. So I just want to say something as a challenge. If you've been to this church like three times in a row, if you've been to this church three times now consecutively, you're probably not seeking anymore. You're probably time to like dig in. Probably not seeking, you're probably standing, standing on the sidelines. And I just want to offer you some encouragement. It's much more fun getting in the game than watching from the sidelines. Partnership class is coming up April 28th in counterchurch.org slash events. Think about whether God is asking you to dig in and to start playing instead of watching from the sidelines. Sometimes it's the very simple act of getting baptized. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Most of the people who come up on stage to celebrate this awesome act of baptism together, they're like, no, I, I'm in. I believe that Jesus is asking me to take this step, except Except I don't want to do that thing with the water in front of everybody. I mean, why do I have to do that? And it's ironic that the price is like the very literal first step in the journey of faith. But, but that's where it is. But you can talk to anybody who's gone through with that. And I'm pretty sure they're going to tell you that he is worth the price on the other side. We know the price of Judas. We've heard of the price of Peter. What's your price? What's one thing? 
Maybe it's not everything all at once today, but maybe it's one thing, one area that you're going, it hasn't been worth the price, and I'm simply going to trust him with that this week. Because I think it's true, what Matthew tells us here, is that we all have a price. Is that Judas isn't just Judas. Is that Judas is all of us. To make that more clear, I want to teach you a technical and theological word, a phrase called restraining grace. Can you say restraining grace? Restraining grace. See, that's a, it's an important word to keep in mind because restraining grace is identifying grace, not only in the forgiveness of sins kind of grace, but restraining grace is the kind of grace that tracks with us our whole lives. Restraining grace is the kind of grace that says that from God, I have kept you from so many things along the way. I have made sure that you wouldn't have the opportunity to because I know you would have. Restraining grace is tracking along the whole way of saying, I kept you from yourself every step of the way. I'll give you an example of restraining grace is that I grew up in a house where my dad for 30 years in the state of Michigan was a probation parole officer. My mom taught in a lockup facility uh, to minors. We didn't get away with much as a family, <laughs> as a kid. Uh, they, they weren't keen on a lot of things in the world. But what we did what we did as a family, I still remember, is we lived in a suburb far west of Jenison, and we went to church, or far west of Grand Rapids in Jenison, we went to church on the northeast side of Grand Rapids. So we'd drive through downtown. And I remember, right, picking up these people along the way, and they're very particular kind of people, right? Uh, I know them now as recent parolees, right? But back then, I just knew them. They were just dad's friend. Like, we're going to go pick up a couple of dad's friends. And so this guy, this guy would come out of his apartment and he'd come and he'd sit between my brother and I in the backseat bench of our big old conversion van as we drive everybody to church. And I, and I just knew as a kid, the, the guy like just reeks of body odor of cigarette smoke and of booze, but he's one of dad's friends. Right? And it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to look at somebody like that and think like, man, I have done so much better in my life than they did. I'm so much better of a person than they are. I've made so many more better decisions than they made. And God is in the background there and he's going, yeah, because of the restraining grace in your life, because I provided you with the gifts that I did, the family that I did, because I was there for you every step of the way, God looks at us and he goes, you too, Dirk and dad's friends, you're no different. John Owen, a Puritan a theologian in the 1600s says, the sin of every Oh, sorry, the seed of every sin is in every heart. It's there. Maybe God has kept you from some things. That's not a time to be proud of that. That's a time to say thank you. See, once we learn restraining grace, then we learn even more about, about the forgiveness of God in grace. When we learn about what there is just to not boast or brag about, except for to boast and brag in Jesus Christ. Most of the time we think about grace we think about grace as like we're drowning, right? And, and, and we're drowning enough just to like pop our heads up from the water and see Jesus in a boat nearby and to call out, Jesus, help me. And he comes over and he does. That's not grace, church. That's half grace at best. Grace isn't, isn't drowning and calling out for help just in the nick of time. Grace is lying, is lying at the bottom of the lake with two lungs full of seaweed and water. 
and not living a bit. And then Jesus brings you back up, grabs you by that shirt collar, throws you on shore, miraculously brings you back to life. And Christ is using those first words with your new life of saying, Jesus, thank you. That's grace there every step along the way. Grace, actual grace says that we are not saved depending on how committed we are to Jesus paying the price. Grace, actual real grace says we are saved with how committed Jesus is to us. And there's this one final part of the story of Judas that any conversation about him we have to include. It's part of the story in the end. That when we read the story from not just the eyewitness account of Matthew, but we start looking at the other gospel writers as well, from Mark and Luke, John, along with Matthew. And we see that this meal that Jesus was celebrating, we know it as communion today. For them, it was Passover. And it had a very specific, very rigid flow to it that they had been developing for thousands of years. Even in the time of Jesus already, it was thousands of years. And Jesus takes this one part of the meal and commentators, they write about this and they go, there's this one part called the Koresh, which is taking, uh, taking unleavened bread and, and taking some of the bitter herbs from the meal that, that commemorate the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and kind of making this, this sandwich thing out of it. And then the host of the meal would turn to somebody who is special to them if it, was a, if it was a regular old meal, it'd be a, a dad uh, of the family and he might turn to a daughter or turn to a son who is special to him and say, here, you have it first. And it was a privilege and it was an honor. Jesus is the host of this Passover meal and lying next to him that he offers it to is Judas. I mean, let's just like think about that for a second, church. Jesus had just identified that he knows Judas. He knows the seed of sin in his heart. He knows what that's going to grow and blossom into. He knows that he already set the price to his own allegiance to sell him out. And Jesus still turns to him and says, I want to give you this one last chance. I want you to turn from that and to follow me. Jesus turns to Judas and he turns to you and I today and he says, you're special to me. Even though I see exactly what I had to restrain you from your whole life, I see exactly what you have been and are capable of. You're special to me. Take this. Remember and believe. Judas, encounter church. Jesus says, stay with me. We're going to celebrate communion now. If you're brand new to Encounter, I hope this act doesn't cause you anxiety. It's not meant to be. It's simply an act to accept that invitation of Jesus to stay with him, to hear those words that he shared on that night, and to say, yes, Lord. I recognize that I need your grace. I recognize that I'm not nearly as committed to you as you are to me. But Jesus, thank you. If you've never taken this act before, I want to invite you, if you're ready to say yes to God, to celebrate it with us and then to tell somebody about it and to say, I've made that decision. I'm ready.
Amen. I want to invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, many of us, we can't imagine what it means to be so committed to a broken people like us to go to death and back for us. But God, we, uh, we thank you for that commitment. We thank you for the grace, not just the grace in our lives to turn away from sin and to accept that offer of forgiveness and eternal life, but the grace every step of the way to keep us from ourselves. God, we thank you for this meal that you're nourishing our souls by. God, I pray that during this time together, we reflect on those, on those prices that we set. We turn something over to you this week. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.